when we delve down into the dark morass, it can be very easy to be trapped in there and everybody else gets reactive. It becomes very nasty, but if periodically we poke our heads up and ask what's there, that is a way to kind of keep the conversation going. Hello, yogis, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Dharma Talk. I'm your host, Henry Winslow, and this is episode number 35 with my guest, Finley Wilson. Finley is a senior forest yoga teacher, a published author, and an outspoken civil rights activist. But chances are, uh, if you are a yogi and spend even a modest amount of time on social media, you may know him among the multi-million other people who know him this way as the Kilted Yogi. Finley made a video for the BBC that went absolutely viral. He was doing yoga poses in the lush Scottish landscape wearing a kilt, and I won't spoil the surprise, although that opening clip may have clued you in. It's epic and also at the same time a little bit cheeky. If you haven't seen the video, you must check it out. Pause the podcast, go to the podcast, show notes, and click the link to watch this video, and then come back. I'll still be here. Now, the more important thing is that Finley didn't waste this opportunity. He used the virality of this silly video to create a wide-reaching audience to speak on matters of deep personal importance to him. And that's what we're doing here on this podcast today, too. That's an ongoing theme through Finley's teaching career and his dharma. Integrating levity into important, darker subject matter to keep the conversation going. So I really admire that about Finley, and I hope that you do too. We talk about a lot of difficult topics and some lighter ones in this this conversation. We discuss the darker side of willpower and the role yoga played in Finley's swapping alcoholism for bulimia and other forms of addiction. Talk about how if we aren't careful, we can end up using mental gymnastics to justify self-destructive behavior. We talk about something that's very important to Finley, the validity of human feeling and the difference between quote-unquote detachment and emotional unavailability. And finally, we we go through how Finley parlayed 15 minutes of fame into a wide-reaching platform from which he speaks out on depression, abuse, and civil rights. So please stay tuned through these announcements, and we'll dive right into this interview with Finley Wilson, the Kilted Yogi. Yogis, as we round out 2018, I have a jam-packed calendar, and I hope that you can join me for some of these events. The first one coming up is Sunday, November 11th from 12 to 2 p.m. I'm teaching a donation-based vinyasa yin masterclass at Lighthouse Yoga School. It's called Gratitude Practice because that's what I have for you. This is a donation class where proceeds will help pay for me to travel to China to compete in the IYSF World Championships of Asana. So come out for that, and if you'd like to support from afar, you can also donate on my website. I've also got workshops coming up in NYC, Richmond, Virginia, and Costa Mesa, California. So details and signups are available all on henrywins.com events.
at Lighthouse Yoga School in Brooklyn, New York. We are currently enrolling our next 200-hour teacher training for January 2019. So yoga teachers looking to level up your teaching, aspiring yoga teachers who want to do your first training, or yoga students who just want to take their practice a little bit deeper. You can get more information about that also at henrywins.com slash events. And if you apply now using my referral code, henrywins, you'll save $100 on your tuition. There's no fee to apply. So go ahead, put your application in, drop the referral code and lock in $100 off. What's your purpose? What's your vision? What mark will you leave on this planet long after you're gone? I'm Henry Winslow, and you're listening to Dharma Talk, the only podcast where I interview inspirational yogis on how they're changing the world in their own unique ways. Whether you're still searching for your purpose or already walking the path, I hope these stories get you excited to live your dharma. Hello, Dharma Talk community, and welcome back to another episode Today, I've got my friend Finley Wilson on the line. Finley gained overnight international recognition for his cheeky and viral kilted yoga video, which aired on the BBC in 2017. But don't let that first impression fool you. The kilted yogi himself is quite serious about yoga. Finley is a senior forest yoga teacher who owns and operates a studio in his hometown of Dundee, Scotland, and he has also established the Young Yogis Project to bring free yoga to toddlers, children, teenagers, and young people with special needs and disability. Finley is a cook, published author, media activist, and of course, tartan enthusiast. Finley, I'm so happy to have you on today. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing great, doing great. Um, we always start these conversations uh, with the same first question, so I'm not going to skip that. We'll go straight to that first question, which is this. What does the word dharma mean to you, and what is your dharma as you understand it today? Mm. <laughs> That's a fun question so far. So um, <laughs> dharma to me has always been like an understanding of um, personal duty, and to me, I've always held myself incredibly accountable for my own actions, but also for my own willpower. So I've, um, whenever I find myself in like really challenging situations, of which there have been many, I've always reminded myself that I've had like the willpower and the duty to oversee changing that. So whether it was injury, whether it was issues with alcoholism or mental health, I've always try, like endeavored to drag myself out of that through my own willpower and seeing that as my duty to do that, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. And that's an interesting little spin that you put on it. Because I think a lot of people think about Dharma as the duty that we have to take certain actions or um, represent certain causes. But I've never heard anyone else bring the, the extend that duty into the willpower aspect. Well, I mean, that's the way I see it. I mean, if, if I if I cannot generate that energy for myself, then and I am planning to make myself an exponent of that in the world. And how am I a representation of that? Right. You know, so um, it's this idea of like, like heal yourself and then begin to do the work of potentially inspiring others to heal. Mm -hmm. And you but mentioned... willpower is always made up. Go ahead. My personal discipline, you know, of a, a practice of 
you know, for even like getting up and doing a yoga practice on a daily basis become almost an act of duty um, and repetition rather than one of, mm, I suppose, th- there's no goal in mind. Right. Yeah, no goal. I mean, that's the that's the classic uh, practice with non-attachment, right? The Vairagya, Abhyasa, that duo. But you mentioned yeah. that you've um, you've applied this idea of duty and action and willpower to a number of struggles in your personal background already. And you, I think you mm-hmm. said some alcoholism and mental health issues. Would you be comfortable talking about some of that? Yeah, of course. I mean. Like I would say like that the alcoholism was probably one of the first sort of major barriers. It was masking a lot of um, mental health problems. But I think I was neglecting my own duty to self um, and was really like falling in with a crowd where I was like hustling for a lot of attention and acceptance. But was also in a place where I was in such turmoil with who I was and who I wanted to be that there was such incongruency in that that drinking became one of the only ways to make sense of that experience mm-hmm. um so i mean like usually before lunchtime i would have made my way through like like a, a liter of vodka that's quite a lot for before lunch that's, i would say that's quite a lot <laughs> <laughs> for any time really yeah. I, I suppose for any, and, time of, any time of day that's a lot for one person yeah and um h- how did that come to a head so, I mean, that it came to a head where um, I went through like a, a breakup and that was almost like a, a breaking point for me in that like I was lost. I didn't really know who to turn to and that led to me attempting to take my own life. Okay. So um, it, which so it obviously got even darker. Wasn't successful. Yeah. Well, my, my story isn't one of all rainbows and sunshine, sadly. Um, and so like, after that moment, that was there was a real turning point there where, I mean, I had put on a lot of weight. I was incredibly unhealthy. I was drinking every single day, and I kicked my willpower into shape that day and basically like swore off of alcohol from then, um, and started a path towards eating better and exercising. Um, but without dealing with the mental health problems, I actually started using all of that in an incredibly helpful, unhealthy way and started actually punishing myself with exercise. Like I started really punishing my body, controlling my food to the point that I was like an absolute food Nazi. And then um, when my first yoga teacher suggested that I couldn't get um, Marikyasana C and D because of my weight, um, she suggested that I start practicing cleansing techniques and kriyas basically vomiting in a bucket to lose the weight and i picked up bulimia through yoga confusing this concept of duty because i thought i must do what this teacher tells me this is my duty now mm-hmm. so it became this other twisted entity yeah that is i mean that's really um that's really a, a kind of crazy story but i can also yeah. totally see how that happens, you know, because it's very tempting when you're coming away from one addiction to trade it for another. And when very you put so. in, in your own mind that you're doing something healthy and you've made a commitment to it and you've put this power of your own discipline and willpower behind it, then you almost, it's easy to lose sight of the, um, the broader picture 
in favor of the details, right? It's like you don't see the forest for the trees anymore. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess this was all sort of happening as you had already started practicing yoga. Where did well, you, I mean, how were you able to reconcile the danger of the yoga practice when misinterpreted into something that ended up supporting you? Well, the yoga was, the yoga was challenging. So I was going through this um, struggle with food and then through unfortunate circumstance, I had to have surgery on both of my legs. I, I Throughout my teens, I had like problems with my bones and I had to have my bones sanded down in my legs to take away lots of spikes that were puncturing all the soft tissues. Um, so after two quite intensive surgical procedures, muscle wastage and nerve damage, I was reduced to like a wheelchair and mobility aids for about six, seven months. Um, and so I started going to a yoga class because I was, t- I was told that it was easy and it would be something that I could do. Um, and so when I started, I mean, I was still in crutches when I began my yoga practice and it was an Ashtanga class and there was a lot of standing poses and I just, I couldn't do any of them. And I was always just instructed to just sort of sit and wait for all the seated poses. Um, and that was kind of like my induction into yoga mm-hmm. was this like very authoritative system but also one where i kind of had to sit and think about my problems not necessarily in a good way um but it was certainly a motivator for change and for development sure yeah i mean were you doing this Um, in a mysore style or were you there in a lead class basically just sit it was it was a lead class but it was a lead class but when i approached the teacher about my injuries and i said look i I can't stand up she just turned to me and said but we're doing standing poses as if that was my problem Uh not hers so you would Um, just sit there and it's a very pervasive attitude actually okay yeah um so I guess you're not doing much of the Ashtanga anymore. Uh, no, no, no. I mean, I, I, I moved on to actually teach um, Ashtanga primary for about three, four years. And then when I did my forest yoga training, I, as soon as I returned from that, I stopped teaching Ashtanga at all. Yeah, I've never gone back to it. Yeah, and now you have really connected to Anna Forest and um, identified with that practice much more, right? Much, much so. So when I when I went to my first forest yoga class was with Anna Forest, and after we finished the first class, I was just sitting, thinking, and she came over to me and was looking at me because everybody else had left the room. She just asked me what was wrong, and I said I don't know, and she just she said to me you need to cry and you need to sleep and then I did both of those things not obviously right there but in the break and when she came back I was able to verbalize to her I said to her I feel like I have contained my yoga practice inside a tiny glass bottle and was so proud that I'd filled it that I'd reached my maximum potential of this tiny glass bottle and I felt like she shattered it and showed me that there was so much more that I hadn't tapped into on the physical from the emotional and from the spiritual side that I just hadn't grasped i'd been so focused on like detachment and separation that i'd lost myself explain that what do you mean exactly by being so focused on detachment i was always we were always taught very much um 
in the way that the teachers were explaining the sutras that to have an emotional reaction was not necessarily something to favor that that was a disruption of the thought waves and that that was almost something that we were looking to quell so this idea of like clarity of thought but also suppression of emotion became this concept that we were drilled with as well as this idea of like tapas purification by fire meaning that injury in the pursuit of a yoga practice became weirdly like a badge of honor mm-hmm. and so my duty my daily duty was to observe doing a rigorous practice no matter whether it was injuring me and to strive to be essentially emotionally unavailable at all times in the pursuit of this calm i basically became like a zombie human Mm -hmm. because because it was working or i mean you were achieving the thing that you believed that you were supposed to be working toward yes Oh, I so, was really good at it. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, you clearly had a very um, dedicated attitude and um, hardwired discipline for the practice at whatever given that point. Can be you, you, the way that you understood it, right? So, if you had decided yeah. that that's what you were trying to do, taking to that kind of an addictive personality, working with that kind of philosophy, I could use mental gymnastics to use any piece of yoga sutra to beat myself to death with. Mm-hmm. Right. And I was really good at that too. <laughs> so, what what was the turning point there? How how were you able to reframe your your thought pattern around what was considered an acceptable expression or investigation of emotion? Before or after forest yoga? Well, I I mean, I take it that the forest yoga was um, a part of that turning point. Yeah, I mean, Forrester was very much a turning point in that I was being invited to feel my body, which was something I'd never been cued before in an Ashtanga class. In an Ashtanga class, I was essentially making a shape. I was there for five counts, and that was me gone. All right, There was no thought. There was no thinking. There was no decision. There was no choice point. But being asked at the start of a class, for example, to choose a spot that needs healing and to focus on that in every single pose and to do the pose in a way that deals with that issue in the present moment was an absolute game changer. Mm-hmm. To right. focus inside rather than, I mean, Forest Yoga doesn't use a practice of drishti, for example. So there's no external gaze. There's no inane counting to five just to get the hell out of that pose. There was <laughs> none of that. And I'd never had that before. Yeah. Interesting. That's very interesting. To ch- yeah. I mean, because really, like, you can find justification for even the things that you're talking about now in the sutras, too. So it's really how can you support what you're trying to do? You know, I mean, the sutras talk about diverting your or reverting your senses inward, too. I mean, that's that's the fifth limb of, of, of the Ashtanga eight-limbed path. Yeah, but Yahara, sensory withdrawal is very important. Exactly. But right. we have a selective understanding, right? So we, we pick out the well, lessons to form a narrative that there we was a want. Huge, exactly. I feel like there was a lot of people getting super fixated on a lot of the information from the first book. And then actually, like book two and three, like people are just being incredibly selective about the way that the exponents are being explained. And so I think it was very easy to use them as a almost a bludgeoning tool. Right. instead of one to move you forwards. And so I, my, my practice became one of not like, cause I was, I mean, I was totally like, I was boasting to friends, like just you wait, I am not reincarnating, just you wait. <laughs> um, but 
now it's like forest yoga has brought this idea that actually spirit is something that is here it is there with you it can be interacted with and it's for right now it's not for when you die and move on it is right now and so essentially that my practices have been one of pushing spirit away and doing work that might benefit spirit when i'm dead instead of necessarily making actions in this world just now that will enhance my connection to my spirit and allow me to feel more genuine in my actions that well, that's the game changer yeah and and that is a very interesting um paradigm shift too because if there's one way to look at that which says that the new way the the forest way is a deeper sense of presence i that's something that i grapple with a lot personally is like where do you draw the line between delaying gratification with the work that you're doing now to support some further mission or even you know just some um, future pleasure versus appreciating what's happening right now and that does not stop at the physical level you know you can you can approach the spiritual level the exact same way and i I like the way that you put that Hmm. well let me let me hear a little bit about how your practice is actually looking these days because you know you changed the way that you approached or your your mental framework around the practice did your actual physical practice of the poses or pranayama or any of the subtler practices how has that evolved over time as you've shifted your perspective well i mean certainly on adopting a forest practice there is you start with meditation and then move into pranayama and so that that has now become that's now a daily practice Whereas before, like I, I would save pranayama in my sangha practice for really special occasions, like almost when I wanted to feel holier than now, I think I would use it in that way. Whereas now it's like to start with intense setting of meditation, to start with perhaps even some journaling and then pranayama and then move into an asana practice. That's kind of where I've moved into. Um, certainly. The repetition of a, an Ashtanga series, like I don't have that. Every day I sit on my mat and I ask, like, what does my body need today? Where is sore? I mean, as a vestige of the surgeries and the things that I've done to my body, like I, I am sore a lot. I'm, I'm kind of in pain all the time. So my yoga practice has become one of maintenance to begin to alleviate that. I mean, there's issues with my spine that I can't do anything about, um, but I can start to work on, I can work in a way that minimizes my pain on a daily basis. And that's, that's where my practice gets informed from. And is that what you're really going for with your physical practice? Is it about reducing pain? Yeah. So it's about, it's about minimizing my, I'm not like, I'm not, so I'm not pursuing any poses. I wouldn't be like, Oh yeah, I'm like trying to really get that handstand thing. I don't really do that. Um, so I don't really have any like poses in mind. There are, like, I have an absolute fondness for arm balances, hip opening, back bends, handstands. I mean, people say, what's your favorite pose? I have no idea. There are so many. It's like an absolute buffet of delicious entities, and I will happily (laughs) sample them all. But that might come from an issue with my relationship with food. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. So, yeah, so my yoga practice, when I sit down on a daily basis, I mean, one thing I will say, when I sit down on my yoga mat, the first thought is, oh, again like here we go again i don't really get excited about my yoga practice so how do you 
how do you get yourself to do it then? Willpower. It's come back. It come back to the to the willpower. Yeah, I know that if I don't do it, the next person I see in the street, I'm probably going to try and rip their face off. So I'm a better person when I've done my yoga practice. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, so there you go. I mean that that's sort of what I was talking about with this reconciliation of delayed gratification or doing something for some future benefit versus being in the present moment. Because you know we always hear in yoga classes and in yoga teachers often speak on the importance of presence, but you also do need to be mindful of what you can do now f- for the future, right? Like, because if you're only thinking well, the about... Well, I don't tend yeah. to get too obsessed about it. So with like, if I'm thinking, okay, I'm in the present moment. In the present moment, I'm still a collection and assembly of all memories and things that have brought me to this point, including any skills that I have that I would say are in my toolkit. If I want to, in the present moment, do things that will give me a greater toolkit for later on that day the future me is going to be very grateful that that toolkit is slightly enhanced right so i've got no problem mentally and mentally and spiritually to think if i'm doing this i can pay it forwards and there's still no guarantee that i'll be pain-free but the future me which will then be the present me looking back will be much gladder of that action than the inaction Mm-hmm. Right. So basically, the present moment includes a consciousness of past and future. I, I think that makes sense. And that's a, a nice way to kind of pull it all together. So yeah. Finley, let's let's talk a little bit about this, um, this kilted yoga phenomenon. What was the how did that even come about? Like, where did that come from? And what did you take away from it? Oh, gosh, well, so I, I started doing, um, I got approached by the BBC to create some online content for their Facebook page. Um, and it was just like a, like almost an informal thing. And I created a video on like mindful intention setting for New Year's to deal with people making really flunky resolution settings. Then I made one about my dog. Um, and the video about my dog ends up getting like, three four million views in about two days which was one of their biggest videos that they'd ever had and they were delighted (laughs) um and so they basically said like when you do your next video you've got free reign do whatever you like because they previously shot down the me i wanted to do the kilted yoga video first oh you did it's not gonna work um so once the dog video went viral they said do what you like so i said i want to do the kilted yoga video and i said i want to be able to showcase some of the places that are that look really similar to where I grew up. I want to showcase like really beautiful Scottish landscapes. So there was mountain, river, forest, um, waterfall. There was all those things in there. Plus yoga in my national dress. So it was, you know, it's very much like what I thought it would be like. And then um, when the video was released, I was teaching my beginners class. By the time I came out from my beginners class an hour later, it was at 1 million views by the time I came out of my, Second class after that, it was sitting at 3 million views. By the time I got home and had my dinner, it was at 14 million views. The following morning, it was at 43 million, and it was just insane. So that, that, video insane. Then went up to like, that video then went up to like 70 million views, which was just crazy. So we ended up on TV shows over here. I've been featured in Cosmo, The Today Show, People Magazine. Like All these different places were picking up. Kilted Yoga, I ended up in it. Um, walking in a parade in New York down 6th Avenue doing yoga 
Um, I had lunch with the health secretary of the United Nations. Um, I've been able to show yoga to people who previously weren't noticing it. Um, in Scotland, we've got like quite a dated concept of what it is. And I think a lot of people think it's like really, there's a lot of woo in there and a lot of people just won't do it because there's a big religious connotation that's very anti-Christian. Sure. Um, so so like, it's brought yoga to like the front doors of a lot of people that previously may not have done it and has allowed me to then create a second video. Like my next video after that was with my twin brother about male mental health, depression and suicide. And that allowed that video to go viral on the back of it. And so what it has allowed me to do is opened up an audience of people who have suddenly become receptive to what I want to speak about. So it's opened the doors in a really wonderful way. Um, for example, I was speaking at a book festival last last week. And instead of speaking about the book, we were speaking about mental health. We were talking about um, a lot of stuff in the press about abuse survivors coming forward and speaking their stories and the importance of communication and not silence um, and about consent and listening and sharing and empathing and all this stuff was coming up in this talk with the public so it's allowed for a much greater dialogue on a lot of very diverse issues that are very close to my heart something that I never thought I would be able to do but it's also allowed me perhaps unusually so to speak openly publicly and to the world i mean on my social media i'm kind of transparent anyway about like childhood sexual abuse it's something that is sadly incredibly common but shut down a lot and to actually be able to go through a healing process with a collective global audience has been incredible mm -hmm. well i can sort of so start it's, to it's, see how it's this been is a serious journey yeah, and, and I can see how it's all sort of starting to fit together. I mean, the, my sort of like understanding of what you stand for and how you're changing, you know, how you're changing the world. Um, if you haven't, for the listeners, if you haven't watched this video, it's it's very quick, but it's beautifully shot. It's a little bit silly, but it's also, you know, it, it's... Uh, emotional in a certain way like it it carries this nationalistic pride and I can see how wrapping something that felt a little bit uncomfortable um, to a conservative audience you know if, if yoga has this connotation of being anti-christian wrapping it in um, in a Scottish flavor could open people's eyes up to it you know and especially because it's lighthearted, there's this levity to it um i won't i won't spoil the ending if you haven't seen it was it, but... always intended to have that levity <laughs> right exactly i mean it's it's clear but um yeah if you haven't seen it it'll be linked in the show notes for this episode so please check out the video so we're know we know what we're talking about here but um finley why do you think it had that virality to it like what do you think about it really made it catch fire in that way at that time there was a lot of really toxic press going on i know there's usually a fair amount but it was particularly grueling at that time and a lot of people were really down about a lot of issues and it just went through social media as a very short breath of fresh air something that people hadn't necessarily seen before and it just captured people's imagination and it was 
it was that it was people were looking at comments people sharing this and be like this will brighten your day and that was the message a lot of people were putting out there this will this will brighten your day and that's what captured people's attention um it right a break a break something, from the, so, from something the darkness. that is quite so simple and insidious just exactly and i think it was particularly grim at that point yeah. so then how do you you know, I think it's so great and uh, and powerful that you're able to piggyback off of that um, that recognition to be able to speak about topics that are important to you and you feel need to be addressed in the public consciousness. How how do you m- make sure that you can keep people's attention when you're talking about heavier issues when they're already flooded with so much darkness? Again, this idea of levity. So even in my classes, we can be in very challenging poses, but if I can't make you smile, I don't think I'm really doing my job. Hmm. So I've always kind of considered myself a little bit of a, uh, almost like yoga fool at the front, doing dance with the bells to try and keep you in the room and in the experience. So the same when I'm speaking about these issues, I will still dance in there with little quips that will bring the mood back up because I'm very well aware that when we delve down into the dark morass it can be very easy to be trapped in there and everybody else gets reactive it becomes very nasty but if periodically we poke our heads up and laugh at what's there that is a way to kind of keep the conversation going and I find when especially when I do my public speaking that that is how I keep the audience going I don't throw myself under the bus I don't like make fun of myself but there are some things where I, like, I look around and I just, sometimes I just have to laugh. Totally. And you I mean, know, I, mean, it's... I was at this book, I mean, this book talk, I, we, we were delving into the childhood abuse stuff. And I said, like, here we are talking about abuse. And the only reason you're in this room is because you've looked at my ass. <laughs> yeah. And right. that broke the whole audience <laughs> took a moment to think about that and be like, hang on, is this an abuse joke? And then all of a sudden we're like, this is the only reason we're here. We saw his ass. Yeah. And it's like, is it okay you know? to laugh right now? Or... Yeah. <laughs> and that yeah. It kind of breaks that, it breaks that tension. Right. And I laugh loud. I don't know. There was a video on my Instagram of my partner on my teacher training just made this wrong statement during a class that was taken entirely out of context. And it's just a video of me laughing my head off because I just couldn't cope. Well, you know, I mean, if you, it's the, always the jester, you know, who is the only one who could actually speak truth to the king without getting his exactly. head lopped off. So there is something really important. It's a about, powerful archetype. Totally, totally. And I can, I can absolutely see how you would be the perfect vessel for that because, you know, you just have this vibrance, this kind of like jolly lightness to you and it doesn't mean, and I think it's important for people to see that just because we are happy and light and appear to be free, you know, that doesn't mean that we aren't confronting these issues too. And to share that is, is so helpful to so many people. Well, that's where I think it also breaks through this perception of perfection on social media. I mean, I get so tired of seeing these articles on a daily basis of, people slating the insta yogis being like none of them are real none of them post anything of substance i'm like actually how dare you like that Mm. isn't 
true. Like if you bothered to read what some of us say, some of us sit and think about what to write on a daily basis. And sometimes our revelations come from a place of hurt and a place of urgency or a place of consideration that has taken us to a new place. And we choose to share that. And yes, it may be accompanied by a yoga pose that is fancy, but we use that as the lure to bring you in to help you find something else. And I feel like that becomes like the gift of the Insta Yogi. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're right. It's like, yeah, the images are there to catch your attention. And I I feel the same way as you. I I use Instagram basically as a journal of of self-expression. And it's partly there for me to work through things. But I also see that people, you know, resonate with the words that I put out sometimes and it helps them to see something about themselves. And if I can provide that, amazing. It's, that's one of the reasons why I do it. Also, you know, I use Instagram because it helps me market myself as a yoga teacher and it helps me to reach more people in classes, which I think is an even deeper way, you know, to, to help to spread the practice of yoga. So yeah, the whole social media thing is is tricky, but it's like anything else. It's, it's what intention you bring to it and what authenticity you bring into it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you mentioned a few things earlier on in your in your yoga career or even before your teaching, maybe. I'm not sure about, um, you know, battling bulimia and before that some, some injuries and, and the alcoholism. Since you've turned a new page and gone down this path of teaching the forest yoga, I can't imagine it's been a totally upward trajectory with no hiccups along the way. What sort of struggles have you come up against in, in your more recent uh, path? So um, when I was coming back from my, um, I'm just trying to piece together. So when I was doing like the forest yoga mentorship program, it was about a year after I'd done the foundation training. I'd already been teaching for about three or four years by this point. And one of the biggest obstacles that I was coming up against was that as we did these meditative processes and as we kind of journaled and looked back to kind of find like almost like the root of the problem, I was coming up against these massive blanks in my brain where I was just like, okay, I'm following a path, following a path, memory, memory, and then nothing. And there was just this blank, but I could feel that it was like a charged chasm. There was something there, but I couldn't get into it. And on the last day of that mentorship program, we were doing um, a specific journaling process that involved some movement that was meant to help get the brain connecting dots and memories. And it did. There was a one little flash of something. And from that moment, like I shut my book and like pushed the book away and knew that I had just turned the lock and that what was about to come out would, at that moment, would have destroyed me. And so it took a little bit longer to build my strength and resilience in my practice and to begin to delve into the emotions. And then I was assisting at a forest on a training in Australia about two years after that. Um, I was the assistant on like the Sydney Foundation training and they were doing that same process. And on that process, Anna interrupted the group's process and could see that there was tears running down my face and asked me to speak. And it was at that moment that was the first time I was able to share about being locked in a room at the age of 11 
and what was done to me and what was made to be done to me at that time and to share that the memory had just come back into my body and into my mind at that point ready to be released working with this idea that the 11 year old at that moment his existence ended and was crystallized in time as this blank spot in my memory and somebody else with other pieces that could keep going could only keep going without that memory and so the adult as I gained those resources was able to go back and sequester those memories back again and bring them into the present so to introduce the boy to the man that is now and to get the to get almost like a communication between these co-conscious entities that was invisible before and so like that became like a real that became a real struggle because it became this thing of I mean, I was dealing with really reactive emotional states where I might walk down the street listening to an audiobook and hear something and it would set off a cask racing against the wall as memories and impulses were coming back. It was traumatic and it was quite horrible. But it was me coming back to myself fully. And is that the realization that you had the two years before while journaling that you had to stop yourself from going deeper into? Yeah, the, the, the memory was a piece of fragment of one of my brothers accusing somebody of having done that. Wow. And so that, if I had followed the memory of the accusation, it would have led to the event and it would have led to having to take that memory on board. But I wasn't ready. I felt so fragile at that point that I was even dangling these emotions in there that if I had pursued it at that moment I think I would have been obliterated right and and what's really you know kind of uh interesting about that about hearing this thought experiment this journaling exercise is that you hadn't gotten to that point yet but something in your subconscious knew that it was coming if you kept going and it stopped you Mm. we have these like protective measures in place and yeah warning signals yeah and it's it's challenging you know to to navigate them and know when it's better to leave them on and when it's better to override them Mm. well i think i was getting to that point where i was able to see how the tendrils of that memory were reaching out and tainting my adult life So, for example, like, how can you deal with intimacy when your first experience of intimacy was so messed up? So I I wasn't dealing with intimacy. I would would certainly never initiate intimacy. And so my relationships were dissolving as a result of that. And so so the adult has to address that, you know, to become whole again. Yeah. And you you have to, to I had to go time traveling. (laughs) You had to time travel and meet this other person who you left behind. Mm. And through visualization, able, like being able to, in the world behind your eyes, create a version of yourself to introduce to a past version of yourself and to sit with them and listen to them. It sounds like the, you know, the ramblings of a crazy person, but it was actually incredibly powerful to 
work with that and to also discover what is very much considered an inconvenient or an, a bad yoga emotion was this huge font of rage that would which would normally be expressed as me being emotionally blank. I was able to take it and actually realize that some of this rage that was sequestered away, some of this bitterness can actually be used as a motivator. Now that that rage comes up in me when there are transgressions against the LGBT community, when I see things happening to you know, the women in my life, that fury rises up for me to speak out and to stand up. Whereas before, I was a coward. I didn't have that peace. The rage was subdued and tethered to that memory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like this idea of detachment from the emotions that you had been so focused on cultivating before. Yeah. needs to be... It made me inept. It makes it makes you inept. And it's, it can be so easily confused with, um, with putting inaction on a pedestal when really exactly. they're separate things. It's like, can exactly. you have detachment and watch your emotions, recognize them for what they are, and honor that they are validated. You know, they're, they're justified. Yeah. And that they're there for a reason. Like, the emotions all are chemical signals from your body that something has to be done, that there's an impulse coming in. They're not there to be ignored. Right, right. And that became that. That was probably, I think, like the profound shift that I had with forest sugar. It really changed the way I was working because I was priding myself on being just so completely unavailable that I was untouchable. You probably wouldn't have used the term unavailable at the time, but yeah. No, I would have used. I mean, I I probably would have thought that I was like spiritually blessed. Yeah, I'm pretty sure at that time I would have used like hashtag blessed, not stressed. Yeah, yeah, just en- enlightened uh, above the turmoil. Terrible, terrible hashtag. <laughs> well, okay, so now that you have this power and, you know, this appreciation for how rage can fuel you forward to make positive change, can you take me to one maybe more recent event or contribution that you've made that you feel particularly excited about, fired up about, or proud of? So a new project or something that is based in rage? Um, ideally one that's based in rage, yeah. So one of the, um, I guess one of the most recent ones I've spoken out against, I mean, it happens so frequently. Um, like I received a death threat to my home um, on the basis of my sexuality. Wow. Um, uh, from someone that you knew? It was from a neighbor where, and they proclaimed that they were a neighbor. They wrote the letter by hand and they threatened that they would harm um, not just me, but also my dog. Um, We had our car tires slashed. And instead of allowing that to make me run and hide, instead of making the threat something that I would react to, I took it to rage and opened up the conversation to the community and made a BBC video about it, appeared on television, ended up like on the phone to like the general of like the Scottish police, basically telling them that they weren't doing their job. 
um, and they still never really did their job. So, so, but speaking out about it, one of the really frustrating things that I that came out of it that annoyed me the most was all of these straight um, heterosexual couples and heterosexual people saying that this sort of thing didn't happen anymore. And just even because it just had, even though it just happened, trying to diminish it as this is not something that happens very often. I turned around and I said, you do not know the statistics. The statistics mean that actually it's happening now more than ever. Is that In the true? trans community? Yeah. The wow. trans community, it is up higher than it has ever been. So like, if we're saying that we're in it together, it requires people to turn around and acknowledge that problems are problems. Right. And to think that like, just because like, the number of people that also said, but you've got, you've got same sex marriage now, surely things are fine. No, not so. So for example, when I came to get my divorce, they hadn't written into law that same sex divorce had the same rights. I couldn't divorce my partner for adultery because there's no such thing as adultery in same sex marriage here. No way. So I ended up losing I ended up losing my home, I lost my animals, I lost everything that I had because we are not equal. Not under the law. Nope. Well, I mean, the the good thing certainly is certainly no that better you, in the states. Yeah, well the good thing is that you do have fortunately because of you your recognition through what was you know, a lighthearted yoga video, now you have the ear of the BBC and you have the ability to uh, speak out to a large group of people and, and that platform is is something that you can use to your advantage to further this conversation. Definitely. But it's also something like I don't want to appear on TV and go through this like illusion of being straight. So whenever I appear on TV, I am my relaxed, jovial self. And that can be one that comes out with some like super campy jokes. <laughs> <laughs> and why should you have to disguise your your personality? Exactly, exactly. So I mean, we now we now have like young people coming to this, the yoga studio. I mean, we've had one one young person who um, got sent for like gay conversion therapy and then was kicked out of her home by her family. And we've effectively we've effectively adopted her, and she's now um, training to be a yoga teacher. So there's there are ways that, like, even though the video was kilted yoga, even in my community, it's reached out and has enabled people to come forward and say, hey, I need your help. And Amazing. The really Amazing. cute thing is, like, the kids that I teach, they are, like, they boast to everyone that they meet that their yoga teacher is, like, famous. And they're, they're so adorable with it. So adorable. <laughs> my yoga teacher is the kilted yogi. <laughs> seriously that's what they tell people it's really cute <laughs> yeah well i do want to give you a chance to talk about i think you had another project in mind when i asked that last question so apart from getting your message out on this podcast what are you doing today to live your dharma so for me i i mean we spoke that you and i both we create content on a daily basis that acts as our journal part of my dharma isn't just getting people into yoga it's also like for me it is it's looking after young people so i for example today i was teaching a kids class and 
one of the kids, one of my other teachers was trying to almost persuade in an affectionate way to get one of the kids to call me a name. And the child like refused as if she'd been asked to stab me. Mm-hmm. And there was like, there was a loyalty in this five-year-old to classes with me for a little while that was so fierce that I have to return that fierceness with them. And I think that all the kids that come to these classes know that if there was a sign of danger to them in that class, that I would be absolute mama bear in that scenario. <laughs> and so like looking out for them, like that was after my forest training that I created that project because I thought I want to do stuff that will give kids a space to be able to go to class, be themselves and be silly and enjoy this. And it gives me this untapped way of being the jester with them in like a childish way, which has been really lovely. So I get to work with them and I get to work with um, kids with like severe communication and mobility issues. And it's, it's, I don't do it for the reward, but sometimes the rewards are unexpected. Like when you have a child that cannot say a single word and then the only word that they've learned in three years is the word namaste, that is both beautiful and heartbreaking mm-hmm. at the same time. Yeah. And so, like, so part of my part of the the duty that I have, the part of the the comeback is to look after and nourish the children, to make sure that they feel like there are role models that they can look up to, that they can be brazen and brash, but in a really focused and sensitive way. Like that's like that's almost like my dream for them. I like that dream. You know, I think um, that's part of the new generation's consciousness with it, it comes back to the same things that we've been talking about in this conversation already. Like, can you acknowledge your emotions for what they are and respect them and see them as not being something to be ashamed of or suppress, but well, use well, them to fuel you? In all the readings that I've been doing around mental health, it's like, if I don't deal with them, then I will pass them on. Like, whether that is harming another person or in some way, someone will end up worse off in this chain. But if I do the work of processing it, I can put an end to that history and change it into something else. Now, if you work with an idea, like something that I read once about morphogenetics, this idea that we accumulate knowledge altogether and the next generation inherits it instinctively. So, for example, like my parents didn't know how to program the VCR, but I knew how to program the VCR without even looking at it. Children know how to use an iPad when they pick it up instantly when their parents have no clue how to even unlock the thing. Maybe the next generation on from here will have ready access to their emotions if we are willing to do the work now. Right, right. Uh, well, that's a beautiful sentiment. I hope that that's true. I hope that the the laws of technology apply to our deep human consciousness too. How great would that be? Yeah. Well, Finley, why don't we move on to the final section of this interview, which is sure. called the Prana Round. So in this section, I'm going to ask you six rapid-fire questions and ask you to answer minimum one word, maximum one <clears throat> sentence. Sure. Sound good? Okay. Sure. In one word, why do you practice yoga? Healing. Okay, second question is one that you've already commented on, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What is your favorite yoga pose and why? 
I would say hip on- hip openers. They get into parts of my lower back that other poses may aggravate. Mm, yeah. Okay. What is the single best cue or piece of advice you've ever received from a yoga teacher? Hmm. Again, it's gonna it's coming back to Anna Forrest, I'm afraid. She told me not to kill the rage demon. So I was up against this entity that my Ashtanga training had taught me to subdue. And she taught me that actually that was a huge piece of my power. So rather than kill the dragon, ally with it. Yeah. Tame it, feed it, and use it as your pet. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Recommend one book, either modern or ancient, for our listeners. I don't want to talk about it, is what it's called. Okay. I'll find that. I can't quite remember that's okay. It'll be yeah, linked in the show notes. I'm trying to remember the author. Yeah. So it's cool. called, I don't want to talk about it. And it's about um, male mental health. And it's, if you're a male, it is worth you reading in any way. If you're a female, it is immensely helpful to read because it can give a very complex understanding to what is going on and what might be something to keep an eye out for. Cool. Thanks for that. Okay. Next question is, is yoga for everyone? Yoga is such a massive <laughs> thing. It's like, okay, your yoga might not be my yoga, but I think that my the way I approach yoga is there's always something that you can do. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right, last question. How can our audience get in touch with you and how can we support you in your dharma? So one of the things, if you are a USA audience, if you are interested in kilted yoga, then write to my publisher at Yellow Kite. We haven't got the book for sale in the USA yet because they thought, oh, we're not sure if there's interest. If you are interested, let me know. It's got four beginner classes in it, meditation, and a little bit of my background in there. And also a really great place to access Forest Yoga Basics. It's like one of the only picture print books of Forest Yoga that actually exists. Um, if you visit my website, which is finley-wilson.com, you can find out all my social media handles to keep an eye on some of my blog writing. So my website is where I do some of my more expressive writing about memory retrieval and all of that sort of thing. But you can also find out events where I am with you. If you're a yoga studio owner and you want me to come and either do a talk, book talk, or even teach some forest classes, then get in touch. I'm always willing to come across to the other side the other side (laughs) the other side amazing well thank you so much for giving some of your time to me and the listeners of dharma talk um excited to go check out some more content about memory retrieval especially after you told that story so i'll be checking that out all the links to your socials and your website will be in the show notes thank you finley have a great day thank you you too you got something out of this episode if you like dharma talk and want to keep it going please do me a huge favor and subscribe rate and review on itunes i know it's not the most convenient thing to do but it makes all the difference in getting the show out there and more visible to other people who can benefit from it and hey if you've got feedback or ideas or you want to get in touch with me you can do that on instagram at henry wins otherwise i'll talk to you next week and until then Keep living your dharma.